On today's episode, we have a couple of Marvel comic book movies, starting with Iron Man from 2008 and Spider-Man from 2002. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by, I do appreciate it. As I mentioned, we've got some Marvel movies to talk about, and my goodness, the world of Marvel movies is such a mess. I mean, it's not as bad now as it used to be, but basically, multiple different studios own the rights to certain Marvel characters, and it's just kind of all over the place. Like, Sony owns the rights to Spider-Man, and Marvel Studios now owns the rights to most of the Marvel Universe, but they also just acquired a bunch of 20th Century Fox properties, which were, like, the X-Men and Fantastic Four and things like that. I mean... I really love what they've done with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, I loved that they turned everything into, you know, a a full storyline that all is interwoven and things like that. I mean, it's pretty awesome. I just, I can't get enough of it. Like, they did the whole Infinity War storyline and it just really fucking came together nicely. It just, it worked out really well. So, yeah, I mean... They're really getting, I think, to where they want to be, which is to where Marvel Studios owns all of the rights to their characters, and the only problem is going to be that Sony's not going to give up the rights to Spider-Man anytime soon, like it's just a given, you know? But they've worked together so that they can actually feature Spider-Man and Spider-Man characters in the different Marvel movies that they want to feature him in, so that's that's been really cool that they've done that. So we'll start off with Iron Man, released on May 2nd, 2008, based on a Marvel Comics character created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, Don Heck, and Jack Kirby. Now, when you see that Stan Lee is credited as the creator of a character, I feel like you should take it with a big grain of salt, because he doesn't necessarily, in my from what I've heard, he didn't necessarily create the characters outright, or even necessarily help with their creation. It's more like he saw the potential in these characters. He saw the, the, the amazing idea of having them exist in the same universe and be able to cross over with one another and do things like that. So, I mean, I think when you see Stan Lee, it's like, it, it doesn't necessarily mean like he came up with the idea for Iron Man. It was like, he was there and he was, you know, facilitating things and stuff like that. But I, I don't, honestly, I don't think we'll ever know the full extent of Stan Lee's involvement with these different character developments. So, so the director of this movie is John Favreau, and obviously he's also an actor, but he's done a lot of directing work. He's directed quite a few movies. Uh, the ones that I noticed that he directed that I didn't realize he directed were. The Jungle Book and The Lion King live-action-slash-CGI remakes. And I gotta say, I've only seen one of the live-action remakes that Disney has done of their 
animated films and it was Beauty and the Beast and that's only because I have a crush on Emma Watson that I saw that one so I mean I wasn't overly impressed with that one I liked the animated movie a lot better from 1991 it was so much better in every way in my opinion and it's like clearly just a Disney cash grab you know it's like they're just making their movies over again to make money off of them again so I guess I can't really fault them for that who doesn't like money for the writers on this we have Mark Fergus Hawk Ostby Art Markham and Matt Holloway and Fergus and Ostby did Children of Men, which is a movie with Clive Owen, and he is actually protecting a woman who is pregnant, and she's like the last pregnant woman on Earth, and everybody else is barren, basically, like... It's a pretty fucking wild movie. It's pretty solid. I would check it out if I were you. But Markham and Holloway did Punisher Warzone, and I think I've seen that one. I don't really remember it very well. I want to say it was probably somehow better than the original one with uh, Tom Jane and all that stuff, but it was like, I think it was a lot truer to the comics, maybe, but... It was just interesting to see those two duos come together to make Iron Man because I would never have thought that that combination would work well at all. For the producers, we have Avi Arad and Kevin Feige. Avi Arad has done a bunch of Marvel movies across the board. Most notably, he did Ang Lee's Hulk movie from 2003 starring Eric Bana, and I saw that in theaters and haven't ever seen it since. I just remember it being like overlong and the CGI was not where they would have wanted it to be if they had their choice, you know, they it it didn't actually look that good. So so then we have Kevin Feige, who is the president of Marvel Studios and the primary producer of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is also called the MCU. He was also involved in many Marvel movies before the MCU came about in 2008. For the score, we have composer Raman Jawadi, and he actually did the music for the TV show Game of Thrones, which... I have my opinions that I've already shared about Game of Thrones and what I think about what happened there, but his music was solid in that show. Like, I, especially if he came up with a theme song, like, that's fucking stellar. He also did Uncharted, which was previously covered on this podcast, and I don't really remember the music sticking out too much in that one, but I don't really remember too much sticking out in that one at all. So for the cast, we have Robert Downey Jr., who plays Tony Stark slash Iron Man. He's the CEO of Stark Industries, and he took over the company after his father Howard died. Some movies of his that I'll recommend, I've got three of them. So Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is fucking stellar. Like, he plays a thief that gets caught in a web of, like, this murder mystery, and there's a lot of great humor in it, and it's really pretty funny, and it's it's a solid all-around movie. I watch it a lot, so, I mean, I, I can't recommend that one enough. He also is in Zodiac, which is a David Fincher movie, and he's one of my favorite directors, and this one is about the uh, Zodiac killings from the late 60s, and honestly, there is so much suspense building in that movie throughout that it's just... It's amazing. Like, they really did a fucking stellar job basically keeping you on the edge of your seat the entire time. And then the third one I have is the comedy Tropic Thunder, and Robert Downey Jr. plays an Australian method actor who takes a role as an African-American in a Vietnam War movie, and 
it is as ridiculous as it sounds. It is fucking hysterical. And if Robert Downey Jr. wasn't in that movie, I don't even think I would want to watch it. Like, I don't even think I would have liked it that much. But he just fucking makes the movie. It's so ridiculous. The only ones that, of his that I could never get into were the Sherlock Holmes movies, which is strange because I like the cast of the Sherlock Holmes movies. And I also like Guy Ritchie, typically. But for some reason, I just could not get into the Sherlock Holmes movies in particular. Next up, we have Terrence Howard, who plays James Rhodey Rhodes, and he is the liaison between Stark Industries and the U.S. Air Force. Plus, him and Tony are really good friends. He was in a movie called Crash, which is one of my least favorite movies ever to win or be nominated for Best Picture, which is really saying something. He was also in The Ledge, which I also covered on this podcast, and... I thought that it was legitimately awful. Like, it felt like an after-school special-level movie, and it really didn't make good points or, you know, say a lot of good things. Like, it, it didn't it didn't do it for me. He is also, Terrence Howard, developed the system of thought called teriology, of which one of the primary assertions is that one times one equals two, because he says it doesn't make sense that it only equals one, according to everybody else. Obviously, he's gotten a lot of flack for this. A lot of people have criticized his logic and things like that. But, you know, I mean, it kind of colors my opinion of him as a person. I still think he's a good actor, but I, I just, I hear that and I'm like, are you fucking shitting me, dude? Then we have Jeff Bridges, who plays Obadiah Stane slash Ironmonger, and he's Tony's second in command at Stark Industries. And Jeff Bridges was in the movie Tron in the 80s, and that one sticks out to me as being one that I just, I couldn't understand the hype behind that movie. I didn't really think it was that good. And I mean, obviously, like, it was the 80s, so the special effects weren't amazing. But even beside that, like, the story wasn't that compelling to me. It just, it wasn't that good. And it was one of these ones that got a sequel, you know, 30 or 40 years after it originally came out. So... I, I just, yeah, Tron's not for me, honestly. Then we have Gwyneth Paltrow, who plays Pepper Potts, and she's Tony's assistant and kind of sort of love interest in this movie. She's been in quite a bit of movies, but I'll be honest with you, I'm not a huge fan of Gwyneth Paltrow. I, every time I've seen her in a movie, I thought, God, there's, there's probably an actress out there that could have done this way better, you know? I mean, that's all I could think. Whenever I see her, it's just like... Why, why did you put Gwyneth Paltrow in this fucking movie, you know? I, I just, I don't think that she's a tremendously great actress or anything. Then there's Paul Bettany, who plays Jarvis, the AI that is basically Tony's virtual butler and voice for the interface of his suit. He was in The Da Vinci Code, where he was the weird guy who, you know, like he was super pale and he whips himself and it's super unsettling to look at. I don't know. It was, I never got into those Da Vinci Code movies. I just, I didn't think they were that great and I never read the books and I probably should have, but you know, that's, that is the way it is. So and then for casting notes, we have Hugh Jackman, Clive Owen, and Sam Rockwell were among the actors who were considered for Tony Stark during pre-production. Rockwell ended up playing Stark's rival, Justin Hammer, in Iron Man 2 from 2010. Tom Cruise and Nicolas Cage also expressed interest in playing Tony Stark slash Iron Man at one point. And I gotta say, 
I would have hated either of those guys being in this role, but I would have especially hated Nicolas Cage because, I mean, despite the hype around Nicolas Cage and people acting like he's good, it's he's really not a good actor in my opinion. Director John Favreau wanted Robert Downey Jr. because he felt the actor's past was right for the part. He commented, The best and worst moments of Robert's life have been in the public eye. He had to find an inner balance to overcome obstacles that went far beyond his career. That's Tony Stark. Robert brings a depth that goes beyond a comic book character having trouble in high school or can't get the girl. Favreau also felt that Downey could make Stark a likable asshole, but also depict an authentic emotional journey once he won over the audience. The last casting note I have is that Rachel McAdams was Jon Favreau's first choice to play Pepper Potts, but she turned the role down, and she later played a role in Doctor Strange from 2016 and the sequel to that movie, which those are also Marvel cinematic universe movies. For the plot synopsis, we have the arrogant CEO of a weapons manufacturer turns over a new leaf and develops a state-of-the-art protective metal suit after being held captive by terrorists. All right, let's dive right into this fucking plot. I'm just so fucking amped about this movie. So Tony Stark, played by Robert Downey Jr., is a genius and has changed the face of the weapons industry. Robert Downey Jr. was unequivocally the best choice to play Iron Man. Like, he is Tony Stark and Iron Man to me. Tony's always doing what he feels like and doesn't really give a shit that everyone close to him seems to be annoyed with him for being an asshole of a person. The press grills him all the time about the reputation his company has for supplying weapons irresponsibly, and he basically argues that weapons are necessary, and it's about having the bigger, better stick than the other guy in a fight. I can't imagine being in the public eye so much with all of this shit, you know? It's like, all this decision-making, it'd be so much fucking pressure. I prefer to have as little focus on me as possible, and that's why I keep my listener numbers to below 20 per episode. Please tell your friends about Brandon at Random Reviews. Go ahead and play all of my episodes with the volume down while you sleep to boost my numbers as well. Anyway, Tony's a total playboy and hits on one reporter from Vanity Fair as she's grilling him about what his company does, and he ultimately sleeps with her, and she's pretty fucking good looking. And so maybe I do need to get into dealing heavy artillery and, you know, I could get that ball rolling. What I don't understand is, are we suggesting that a magazine like Vanity Fair is likely regularly reporting shit about the weapons industry? Is that, like, a thing? This may shock you, but I'm actually not a Vanity Fair reader, but... I didn't think this was a subject matter that they covered, you know? We get little dashes of Pepper Potts, Obadiah Stane, and James Rhodes in the beginning, and all of them feel like they would have cut Tony out of their lives by now if they could. I mean, it's not as bad as all of that, to be honest, but, you know, it's it's just, you get a sense that they're annoyed with Tony. Like, he's not a total dick to them all completely, but you basically get a feeling like they're just putting up with him, like... They've all had it up to here with his nonsense. So Tony goes to Afghanistan to demonstrate this Jericho missile. And, you know, this fucking Jericho is pretty fucking sweet. It's like this giant missile that once it's in, like, once it is launched, it 
jettisons several tiny missiles from it and creates this huge shockwave explosion. It's pretty fucking sweet. But he gets captured by terrorists right after the uh, demonstration. And, you know, it's a, just this huge attack on the convoy. And he wakes up in a cave and he's got a roommate named Yinsen who happens to be a surgeon. Yinsen seems like a good all-around guy. And, you know, he helps Tony talk to the terrorists and stuff. And Tony finds out from Yinsen that he's got shrapnel in his chest from the initial explosion with the terrorists. And Yinsen removed as much as he could, but to prevent what was left from penetrating his heart, he put an electromagnet in Tony's chest, and it's powered by a car battery, which is keeping the shrapnel at bay. So initially, he makes this sweet little fucking arc reactor, like this tiny little powerful arc reactor, which mounts into the hole in his chest to replace the car battery, since a car battery would be a lot to carry around. And he says it could power his heart for 50 lifetimes or something big for 15 minutes. And it's just, that's some nice foreshadowing there. Like, that's just, I love the way they, they present that. That sounds pretty fucking awesome. So now that he's a captive in a cave, the terrorists want him to make a Jericho like the one he demonstrated. But instead, he secretly makes a fucking super cool metal suit that's equipped with jetpack thrusters and weapons and shit. And he uses it to escape. It's powered by his little arc reactor, so that's the big thing that he was going to power with it. One big takeaway from his time in captivity is he sees that the terrorists are using Stark Industries weapons that they probably got illegally, so he's starting to see the error of his ways and how the shit he says to the press can seem so arrogant. But the whole sequence with him using the suit and weapons he makes just fucking kicks so much ass and... I just fucking love it. They have to rush to get the suit going in time and everything, and it's probably one of my favorite sequences in movies. It's just very well executed. It's it it's really tense. He gets rescued, and he decides to have this little impromptu press conference, and I can't fucking imagine being the CEO of a company and not at least talking to your board members before announcing this like he does. Like, you can't just get up and decide that you don't want to sell weapons anymore, especially if that's, like, the vast majority of what you actually do as a company, you know? There are a lot of stakeholders and things like that to be considered, you know? I mean, even if you do want to make that change, it can't be only on you. You're not, you know, your, your company is a lot of different people that need to give you some kind of, you know, approval but he announces it anyway without discussing it with anyone first and it kind of seems like that might have something to do with why people are always getting irritated with him tony basically just pisses everybody off but he feels so strongly about this change of heart that he's had that he doesn't really care i remember truly wondering if him and pepper potts would get together in this since i didn't know anything about iron man before this movie came out I always wish they would have cast someone other than Gwyneth Paltrow, obviously, like I mentioned. And now knowing that Rachel McAdams could have been her, I'm just devastated. Like, I fucking love Rachel McAdams. I think she would have been great in this. Also, I want to make sure that I mention that this Agent Coulson keeps wanting to make time to debrief Tony after what happened in Afghanistan. And you don't really know what this Coulson guy is really all about, but he's very fucking persistent throughout this movie. 
So Tony is back at home and he's upgrading his arc reactor because his old one is shitty. And so basically he's got a metal ring in the center of his chest where the electromagnet is that allows him to hook up to power and stuff. It's it's very weird. I don't understand how it functions, but it is what it is. He asks Pepper for her help and she legitimately doesn't know what he means when he tells her that she can't touch the sides of the metal ring and he says that it's like operation and she's like operation what is that what do you mean and it's like are you fucking serious you don't know what fucking operation is pepper like get the fuck out of here she ends up putting the old arc reactor in a glass cube with a plaque that says proof that tony stark has a heart and, you know, it's it's kind of a cute little gift that she gives him. Tony begins work on a new suit, similar to the one from the cave, but obviously streamlined. And we see the process of him working out the kinks with the suit and the thrusters and the weapons and things like that. There are a lot of great interactions with him and his robots where he treats them like petulant children. It's just fucking great. He asks Rhodes for help with the suit, but Rhodes doesn't want anything to do with it since Tony fucked him over on shutting down the selling weapons dealy. Him bringing his suit together and getting it to work is great. It's such a killer payoff when he's done. Obadiah tells Tony that the board locked him out of the company. Then we find out later it was actually Obadiah that filed that injunction to make that happen. Tony finally gets his suit going and he does a little test run and the test run is fucking awesome. He flies out over the city. We get a lot of cool scenery and he has to troubleshoot this icing problem when he gets up to high altitudes that actually shut the suit down. The terrorists find his cave suit and try reassembling it and... It turns out that Obadiah is working with them, so it was pretty much all in for him being a bad guy when you found out he locked Tony out of the company, you know? Tony goes to this event that no one was expecting him to go to, and Agent Coulson stops him and asks him about a debriefing session, and Pepper's there, and she's in this really nice dress, and they almost kiss after dancing for a while, but she's, like, really freaked out about the fact that, you know, the everybody's watching them and stuff. So it's like, but you've got to, like, just throw caution to the wind. If it's, if it's what you feel in your heart to do, you know, just fucking do it. Tony finds out that his company has been caught dealing weapons illegally in the Middle East, and he didn't even know about it. The attractive Vanity Fair reporter that he banged earlier tells him, which that'd be fucking hard, like constantly getting stopped and being told stuff is happening that you don't know about with your company and you probably should know about. When Tony goes home and sees more news about the deals in the Middle East, he suits the fuck up and you know what's coming. Iron Man goes to the Middle East and he saves a bunch of people from the terrorists and he lays fucking siege to a town. And we get this moment with a tank where the tank fires its cannon at Iron Man and Iron Man just casually dodges the shot and... He fires a missile at the tank, and it's this tiny little missile he shoots off of his arm, and it hits the tank, and then he just turn Iron Man just turns and walks away, and the tank fucking explodes, like, massively behind him. It's so great. This is an exceptionally badass sequence in the movie. I mean, the whole thing, it's just... It's really cool the way it happens. And Rhodes calls Tony for help because they think Iron Man is some kind of unauthorized military action happening in a war zone and they don't know who's doing it. So we get a big dogfight chase scene. 
with Iron Man and two fighter jets and Tony tells Rhodes what's going on. Finally, he's like, I'm I'm in it's a suit. I'm inside of it. Like, please stop fucking trying to kill me. And so one of the fighter jet pilots ejects basically and has to be saved because his parachute won't open. So Tony comes and saves him, and it's it's pretty fucking great. We get this funny thing after the fact where Rhodes is like trying to figure out what he's going to tell the press about what happened. And Tony's like, well, I mean, it's like a training exercise, right? That's the usual bullshit, right? And Rhodes is like, it's not that easy. And then the next thing you see is Rhodes saying it was an unfortunate training exercise gone wrong, you know? So afterwards, Tony asks Pepper to go to his corporate office to get some files off his computer. We see Obadiah talking with the head terrorist, and he's trying to figure out Tony's cave suit because he wants to make one. He has this weird little device where he puts in earplugs and holds this thing near people's heads, and it causes them to go into paralysis. It's kind of a cool, dumb villain weapon. It paralyzes people for like 15 minutes or so, and that's it. Pepper is getting the files, and Obadiah shows up at the office and has a nice, long, creepy talk with her. They really nail the tension here, and we get a lot of suspense, and Obadiah is just talking to Pepper, and he's being super fucking creepy. Like, kudos, Jeff Bridges. You did a good job, you know, really pulling off the creepiness. Like, he tells her that Tony's a lucky man, or, you know, what, like, he tells her that she's some woman or whatever. It's, I mean, it's a bit much. So she gets away from Obadiah, and you're, like, legitimately nervous for her because, you know, you think that Obadiah is going to catch her. And she runs into Agent Coulson on the way out, and he kind of protects her. And Obadiah discovers what she did on the computer in the office. We still don't really know what Coulson's endgame is here. Like, he just seems to really want to talk to Tony, you know? Obadiah has people at Stark Industries build him a suit like Tony's cave one, but they can't figure out how to make the tiny arc reactor that Tony did, and Obadiah gets really fucking pissed at them for not being as brilliant as Tony. Like, I mean, they have a giant arc reactor at Stark Industries that powers us however much of the buildings, you know? But, like, they're basically, like, pleading with Obadiah Stane, they're like, we, we can't, we can't build this, it, you know, the technology doesn't exist, and Obadiah's like, Tony Stark was able to build this in a cave with a box of scraps, you know, and it's like, yeah, I mean, that's great, and they're like, we're not Tony Stark, sorry, it's, you know, Too bad, so sad. So Obadiah comes and paralyzes Tony to steal the arc reactor from his chest since the men can't make one. And it's a classic example of how the villain could just kill the good guy immediately in this moment. But I guess direct murder charges are where Obadiah draws the line. So things are really heating up as Pepper calls Rhodes to tell him what Obadiah is doing. And Pepper and Agent Coulson's men are converging on Obadiah, not realizing what bad news he is because he's got this suit. The paralysis is wearing off and Tony has to stumble downstairs to get his old arc reactor in the glass case that Pepper got him. And I really love the way these puzzle pieces fit together in this movie. It really works well. Like, shit that happens actually has meaning and comes back later. So Rhodes comes to Tony's and as Tony leaves suited up as Iron Man, Rhodes looks over at one of the suits and says, next time. And it's kind of funny because it's a reference to him becoming... War Machine slash Iron Patriot in later stories, you know? But basically, 
Terrence Howard got recast after this movie with Don Cheadle, and I like Don Cheadle way fucking better, by the way. He's infinitely better than Terrence Howard, in my opinion. But, you know, like, basically it's like, dude, there's no next time for you, bud. I'm sorry. Like, you're not going to be in a fucking war machine suit. Sorry. So Obadiah puts Tony's arc reactor into his new suit and starts attacking Pepper and the agents that Coulson brought. And they really dial up the intensity once you see Ironmonger, as he's called, in action. It's, like, legitimately frightening. Tony comes to save the day, and the fight between Iron Man and Ironmonger is pretty solid for a small-scale fight. We see the disadvantages and advantages of each suit. Iron Man is more mobile, and Ironmonger seems to have more firepower. Iron Man uses the icing problem that he knows will be present on Ironmonger's suit, which is another puzzle piece, you know, like we got that earlier in the movie and now it's coming back in a big way. The big thing is Tony has Pepper overload the big reactor at Stark Industries to explode and kill Ironmonger, which leaves Iron Man severely wounded, but it's pretty clear he'll live. But, you know, you just see him laying on the ground and his arc reactor is like flickering. So I love this whole bit with Agent Coulson revealing that they've shortened his agency's name to S.H.I.E.L.D., which I'll explain in a little bit what it all stood for and everything, but I didn't really feel like trying to actually say what it stood for in the middle of of talking about the plot. Coulson gives Tony a cover story, Alibi, for the Iron Man Ironmonger fight. It's like he has the story and a bunch of sworn statements from witnesses that he was somewhere else and they're going to say Iron Man was acting as his bodyguard. And Tony is supposed to stick to this ridiculous story, which it's like, you know, that's a shitty BS story. Like, that's not a good cover story. But at the press conference, Tony begins to talk, and the Vanity Fair reporter immediately questions what she knows is a bullshit cover story before Tony can even say it. And then he just says, I am Iron Man. And the movie closes out with the instrumental portions of Black Sabbath's Iron Man, and it kicks a lot of ass, I'll be honest. So Tony opts not to keep a secret identity, which is kind of a big deal. Then in the post credit scene, we get Nick Fury from S.H.I.E.L.D., who has an eye patch and is played by Samuel L. Jackson. Fury just simply says he wants to talk to Tony about the Avengers initiative. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Nick Fury is a great representation of one-eyed folks, unlike that bad guy who poisons Indiana Jones's dinner in Raiders. Plus, he's missing the cool eye to be missing. Good old Lisa Lopez. And that's the end of the movie, so praise. I love the modernization of this story and character. The origin isn't boring and doesn't drag like some origin stories tend to. Everyone is terrifically cast and really sells themselves, except for Gwyneth Paltrow. Plus, the whole revealing he's Iron Man to the public is fantastic. And my only criticism, this is a since, you know, expired criticism that I have because I've seen the error of my ways, but I always used to think that it would be better if they played Black Sabbath's Iron Man intro as Iron Man suited up for the first time. But now looking back, it's like, that would be fucking cheesy as shit, man. Like, I I don't think that would be good. So for trivia, this is Marvel Studios' first self-financed movie. Eventually, they were bought out by Disney, which means crossovers with Star Wars should be here anytime. By the way, check out Patton Oswalt's deleted filibustering scene from Parks and Rec. It is fucking hilarious. He goes into... The different, like, basically his idea for a story, 
where the Marvel characters and the Star Wars characters could come together. And it's just, it's very fucking funny. And he's just basically going on a little rant. And it's purely Patton Oswalt. It's, you know, it's not like it's his character necessarily, but... You know, it's it's very funny. The script was not completely finished when filming began, since the filmmakers were more focused on the story and the action, so the dialogue was mostly ad-libbed throughout filming. Director John Favreau acknowledged that this made the film feel more natural. Some scenes were shot with two cameras to capture lines improvised on the spot. Robert Downey Jr. would ask for many takes of one scene, since he wanted to try something new. Gwyneth Paltrow, on the other hand had a difficult time trying to match Downey with a suitable line as she never knew what he would say, which sounds about right to me. It just seems like she'd be out of her league if she was trying to ad-lib. I Am Iron Man was ad-libbed by Robert Downey Jr. Producer Kevin Feige approved using it in the final cut of the film and credits this with his decision to largely do away with secret identities in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Only Spider-Man conceals his identity, and he's technically not under Feige's control, while Thor's alter ego, Donald Blake, is similarly not used, and I honestly didn't even know that Thor had an alter ego. I thought he was just Thor all the time, but that's the way they presented it in the movies anyway. Jeff Bridges said he felt really uncomfortable not having a script or rehearsals, since normally he is very prepared and knows his lines word for word. Realizing it was like he was in a $200 million student film took the pressure off of him and made it fun. Which I've only heard of a few random movies that are actually, you know, have actually tried to not write dialogue and just kind of set up scenes and run with it, you know? I haven't enjoyed any of the ones that I've seen. They haven't been that good. To avoid spoilers about the final press conference, the extras were told that it was a dream sequence. According to Paul Bettany, he did not know on which film he was working. He merely did the job as a favor for John Favreau, with whom he worked on Wimbledon from 2004. He has never seen the film and is unfamiliar with the plot. He said Jarvis was the easiest job ever, and it was almost like a robbery, since he only worked for two hours, got paid a lot of money, then went on vacation with his wife Jennifer Connelly, must be fucking nice, his role would, however, be expanded considerably in the later Marvel films and even require his physical presence from Avengers Age of Ultron from 2015 on. Tony Stark's computer system is called Jarvis, which stands for just a rather very intelligent system. This is a tribute to Edwin Jarvis, Howard Stark's butler, who ultimately raised Tony after his parents died. He was changed to an artificial intelligence to avoid comparisons to Bruce Wayne's butler, Alfred Pennyworth. In an interview with Britain's Empire magazine, Robert Downey Jr. thanked Burger King for helping him get straight-edged in 2003. With a car full of drugs, he had a BK burger that was so disgusting it made him rethink his life and he dumped the drugs into the ocean. Burger King also promoted the film with toys based on this movie as well as the sequel. Roughly 450 separate pieces make up the Iron Man suit. According to John Favreau, when making this film, there was a lot of pressure for it to succeed. This was particularly due to Marvel using their characters as collateral when they received a $525 million seven-year deal called a non-recourse debt facility, allowing them to make original films based on their properties. Marvel wanted to have complete creative control over their characters, build a film library, and greater profit potential than the deals they've inked with other studios owning the rights to their characters. 
Marvel also changed its name to Marvel Entertainment Incorporated to establish a Hollywood presence. If the film didn't succeed, Marvel would have lost the intellectual property rights to their library. However, the wager paid off as Iron Man's box office success enabled Marvel to kick off an entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, aka the MCU, consisting of interconnecting films and series, and as I mentioned, they ultimately were bought out by Disney. When Pepper discovers Tony removing the damaged Iron Man armor, Captain America's shield can be seen sitting on a workbench. This same scene was shown in many trailers, but the image of the shield was edited out. Iron Man 2 from 2010 and Captain America the First Avenger from 2011 would later reveal that Howard Stark, Tony's father, was responsible for the creation of Captain America's shield, and the one in Tony's home is an early prototype. Agent Phil Coulson repeatedly states that he is a member of the Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division, finally shortening it to SHIELD. In the comics, the SHIELD agency originally stood for the Supreme Headquarters International Espionage Law Enforcement Division. Then in 1991, it was revised to the Strategic Hazard Intervention Espionage Logistics Directorate. In the comics, Tony Stark participated and then became Iron Man in the Vietnam War. Later, this was changed to the Gulf War. In this film, the character's origin was changed to Afghanistan, as director John Favreau did not wish to make the film a period piece, but instead give it a realistic, contemporary look. It took approximately 17 years to get this film into development. Originally, Universal Pictures was to produce the film in April of 1990. They later sold the rights to 20th Century Fox. Later, Fox sold the rights to New Line Cinema. Then finally, Marvel Studios decided to handle their own creation. The Iron Man Mark I armor weighed 90 pounds. And this is the one that he made in the cave, and it's big and fucking bulky, and I would have thought it would have weighed more than 90 pounds. Like, I don't know if they're trying to say that that's, like, really a high number or really a low number at all. Like, I can't even tell. So for info and ratings, we have a runtime of 126 minutes, a budget of $140 million, opening weekend of $98.6 million, worldwide gross $585.8 million, IMDb rating 7.9, Rotten Tomato Critics score 94%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 91%, personal rating 5 out of 5 stars, I absolutely fucking adore this movie, it set up the whole MCU, it's just, it's top notch, it's the I mean, most of the casting is pretty spectacular, I would have picked some other people if I had the choice, but you know, that that's where I stand with this movie, I fucking love it. Alright, so moving on to Spider-Man, released on May 3rd, 2002, based on the Marvel Comics character created by Steve Ditko and Stan Lee, directed by Sam Raimi. He did the Evil Dead movies, which I could never really get into. I didn't understand the big cult following with those movies. It was really... They're just not my kind of movies. I don't know what it is about them. He also did Spider-Man 2 and 3, and 2 is a very good movie, and 3 is legitimately awful, and I mean, I would 
honestly watch it just to see how bad it really is. And he also made the movie Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which was a huge fucking letdown because you were expecting so many crossovers to happen and so many characters being brought into the fold. You, you just had these expectations based on the trailers and the hype around the movie, and it just didn't deliver. It just, it really let me down. It was, it was an okay movie by itself, but like the lack of, of all the stuff that we were expecting, it's like, fuck, I, I wasn't that impressed. For the writers, we have David Kep, who happens to be the ninth most successful screenwriter ever based on box office numbers. He did Jurassic Park, Carlito's Way, and Mission Impossible 1. I mean, he's done a lot of really solid movies. He's clearly a very good writer. For the producers, we have Laura Ziskin and Ian Bryce. For the score, we have composer Danny Elfman, who has done a shit ton of Tim Burton movies, among many other movies, but, you know, he did the two Batman movies that I hold near and dear to my heart, especially the one from 1989. I, I really love his scores. They're, they're really dark and, and cool. For the cast, we have Tobey Maguire, who plays Peter Parker slash Spider-Man, who is a late high school, early college student. He was in Spider-Man 2 and 3, and I've already kind of talked about their quality levels. He was in Brothers with, I think it was Jake Gyllenhaal, and man, that movie is pretty fucked up to watch. Like, it's crazy. Like, it's about this guy who comes home from the war, and he's just, like, not right in the head anymore, and I mean, it's pretty fucking gripping. I mean, it's, it's crazy. He was also in The Great Gatsby from 2013, which I legitimately hated. I couldn't even finish the movie. There were so many, you know, this is a 1920s period piece, and they had multiple Jay-Z songs in the soundtrack that were like, being shown to be, like, playing from people's cars and stuff. It was like, are you fucking kidding me? So next up, we have Willem Dafoe, who plays Norman Osborn slash the Green Goblin, and he is our villain. He's the head of his company, Oscorp, that develops weapons and such for the military. He was most notably in the Boondock Saints. I revisited that one a year or two ago and wrote a, a blog post on it, a review of it. I really love Boondock Saints. It's kind of one of those ones that's like, it's probably overrated because so many people act like it's the best thing that ever happened, but I think it's a really solid movie. Then we have Kirsten Dunst, who I have noted here is hot. Yes, that's right, Michelle, hot. She plays Mary Jane Watson, who is an aspiring actress and crush of Peter Parker, and she is romantically involved with multiple male characters in this movie. She was in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and I know I've said this before, but absolutely check that movie out, and don't look anything up on it to find out what it's about. Just go in uninhibited by any expectations or anything, and just watch it. It, it is a great fucking movie. She was also in Melancholia, which I legitimately hated. It was like an art film type thing. I don't really know what they were going for with it, but I mean, she's topless in it, so that's something. And then we have James Franco, who plays Harry Osborn, the best friend of Peter and the son of Norman Osborn. It's kind of weird, like, they don't really share how he actually knows Peter. He just knows him. Like, he goes to go to public school for the first time, and he already knows Peter somehow, and it's very unclear how that came about. He was in The Disaster Artist. That's the big one I want to talk about with him, because he's... He plays Tommy Wiseau in The Disaster Artist, and 
Tommy Wiseau made this movie called The Room, and it's largely considered to be one of the worst movies ever made, and I've watched it a few times. It's fucking hysterically bad, and I just really enjoy it. I have a really good time watching it. J.K. Simmons plays J. Jonah Jameson, who is the head of the New York Daily Bugle newspaper, and he hates Spider-Man a lot, and it's it really comes through in this movie. He was in the movie Extract, which is a Mike Judge movie, which I love. It I found it very funny. I thought it had a lot of great comedy. It's, you know, that same brand of humor that you're used to with Mike Judge. It's just, there's so much to love about it. He was also in Up in the Air with George Clooney, Anna Kendrick, and Vera Farmiga. And I absolutely adore Up in the Air as well. It's It's worth checking out for sure. So a little bit of history and casting notes. When the film was originally in development in 1985, the studio was considering Tom Cruise for Spider-Man, Bob Hoskins for Dr. Octopus, and Lauren Bacall or Katherine Hepburn were going to play Aunt May. When the project began in the late 1980s, the role of Mary Jane Watson was considered for many actresses, and brace yourself for me listing off a shit ton of names here, including Jennifer Jason Lee, Jodie Foster, Phoebe Cates, Tatum O'Neill, Bridget Fonda, Lori Laughlin, Diane Lane, Sarah Jessica Parker, Brooke Shields, Kira Sedgwick, Justine Bateman, Nicole Kidman, Julia Roberts, Molly Ringwald, Jennifer Aniston, Uma Thurman, Jennifer Connelly, Winona Ryder, Christina Applegate, Cameron Diaz, Alyssa Milano, Tori Spelling, Nev Campbell, Tiffany Amber Thiessen, Allison Hannigan, and Drew Barrymore. That's fucking 26 actresses. But when the project eventually went into pre-production, it was basically like all of those women were too old for the part by that time. So it was like they they weren't even going to be considered for it anymore. Following the critical and financial failure of Superman 4 in 1987, the studio slashed the budget for the Spider-Man movie, and at one point, James Cameron was attached to direct, and he pitched an X-Men crossover, as well as villains Electro and Sandman. David Fincher was asked at one point to direct, and his version would have told the origin story in the opening credits and would have been based on The Night Gwen Stacy Died. Chris Columbus was offered the director's chair, but opted to make Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone instead. At one point or another, Leonardo DiCaprio, Charlie Sheen, Edward Furlong, Freddie Prince Jr., Elijah Wood, Chris O'Donnell, Jude Law, Frankie Muniz, Josh Hartnett, Chris Klein, James Franco, John Cusack, and Heath Ledger were considered for the lead role. Nicolas Cage, Mel Gibson, Bill Paxton, John Travolta, Brad Dourif, Robert De Niro, and John Malkovich were considered for the role of Green Goblin. Kate Bosworth, Tara Reid, Elizabeth Banks, Eliza Dushku, Kate Hudson, and Mina Suvari were among the actresses who were auditioned, considered for, or offered the part of Mary Jane Watson. Some of the actors considered to play J. Jonah Jameson included R. Lee Ermey, Hugh Laurie, Harv Presnell, Dennis Farina, Michael Keaton, Fred Ward, Christopher Lloyd, and Bill Paxton. And then J.K. Simmons was ultimately cast. Stan Lee said that he had always wanted to play J. Jonah Jameson since the character was based on him, supposedly. He even auditioned for the role, but it was determined he wasn't right for the part. 
Lee would go on to be highly complimentary of Simmons' portrayal of the character. In the late 90s, the studio lined up Roland Emmerich, Tony Scott, Chris Columbus, Barry Sonnenfeld, Tim Burton, Michael Bay, Ang Lee, David Fincher, Jan DeBont, and M. Night Shyamalan as potential directors, but ultimately went with Sam Raimi. So for a plot synopsis, we have a high schooler who appears to be 36 years old is bitten by a genetically altered spider and gains spectacular abilities and must face off against a crazed, deadly foe. Alright, let's dive right into this plot, gang. So right off the bat, we get Danny Elfman fucking killing it with the intro score, and he kills it throughout, but I probably won't mention it much. I remember I was so fucking excited for this movie when it came out. Like, I was riding on the high of these two PlayStation Spider-Man games that were really good. Life was fantastic, and this was when there wasn't a new superhero movie out every five minutes, so thanks X-Men for paving the way on that. Peter Parker leads it all off by assuring the audience that he's not your regular, ordinary guy. Of course, his story has to revolve around a girl somewhat. Mary Jane Watson, a.k.a. MJ, played by Kirsten Dunst. We see that Peter gets bullied a lot by other schoolmates as he goes on a field trip to the science department at Columbia University, and he meets his friend Harry there and meets Harry's father, Norman. Norman fucking loves Peter since he's intelligent and just seems to be who he'd rather have for a son. They go to this lab where they're studying spiders, and Harry uses all of his interesting facts that Peter has told him about spiders to chat MJ up in front of Peter. Like, basically, Harry just carpes that DM when he realizes that Peter isn't going to talk to MJ. He just takes it upon himself to fucking talk to her. And it's like, Peter is the one who is afraid to talk to MJ, but it's fucking ice cold that Harry actually uses the spider factoids to hit on MJ. I mean, come on. While he's taking pictures of Mary Jane for the school paper, Peter gets bitten by a genetically altered spider. It's a pretty great scene, but apparently it's not even Tobey Maguire's hand that they show getting bit. It's like some double or something. So this whole sequence is iconic, though. I'm just relieved that they could basically retell it almost exactly with different actors in a somewhat different movie ten years later with no real improvements whatsoever. So Norman's whole arc before and during becoming our villain is that his company Oscorp develops weapons and other scientific things for the military. And they have this serum that can increase strength by 800%. And one scientist is opposed to the serum based on the experiments where one case displayed several side effects, including insanity. Which, first off, I'm not really sure how official of a clinical term insanity actually is. And second, I could see giving up what semblance of sanity I have for turning into a beefed-up fucking hunk with muscles. So, the military gives Norman a deadline and says they'll pull his funding if he doesn't meet it. Peter comes home and acts pretty ill after the spider bite, and his Aunt May and Uncle Ben are worried... We don't really get any explanation of Peter's parents in this or why he's living with his aunt and uncle, but I'm honestly okay with that because we don't really need that in this movie. We see Norman take the serum with the one scientist you just know he fucking hates for speaking out. Norman turns into a deranged monster after taking the serum and kills the scientist and steals a glider and an armored suit from the lab. It seems like there would probably be a lot of evidence that Norman did this, you know, like, along with motive. I mean, 
you mean to tell me that they've got all these high-tech weapons and stuff like that, and they don't even have surveillance cameras going at all? Peter awakens in his room to find out that some changes have happened. You know, he no longer needs his glasses, and he's kind of fucking ripped now, and he runs off to school where he finds out that he has some other new abilities. He catches MJ, who slips and falls in the cafeteria, and this is when we get, like, his spider sense. Like, she slips and falls, and, like, you just hear this, like, music cue, and it's like him just knowing that danger is present, you know, and he just needs to react quickly. But he catches Mary Jane, and... You know, he has her in one hand and all of her food flings up in the air. And in the other hand, with the lunch tray, he catches all of the food in rapid succession and it all lands on the fucking tray. And it's pretty impressive. And apparently they did it practically because, you know, they wanted to save a shit ton of money on CGI. And it took approximately 156 takes to catch all of the food on the tray. So he finds out that he can jizz webbing that dispenses from the underside of his wrists, and he accidentally uses the webbing and flings a tray of food on head bully and boyfriend to Mary Jane, Flash Thompson. This scene has some pretty fucking solid effects by 2002 standards, I think. We get a lot of slow-mo and shit like a spitwad suspended in midair. Peter reluctantly fights Flash and is able to be mostly defensive, and Flash can't land a single punch because Peter's reflexes are so good. So Peter ends up winning the fight and flees from school and goes to try out his new powers, and he figures out that he can climb walls and all that stuff. But during this sequence, we get a lot of CGI where he's trying out his powers, like he's jumping from one rooftop to the next, and it's like... it. The CGI looks really cartoonish. Like, it looks pretty fucking bad. And I remember people bitching about that with this movie when it came out. So, I mean, say what you will. I mean, it, it's, it was probably as good as we were getting in movies at that point. It's just CGI is only shitty if you recognize that it's CGI easily. But I do want to stop and take a second to thank this movie for fast origin stories. Like, basically, it just takes no time to all of a sudden you've got Norman becoming the Green Goblin and you've got Peter becoming Spider-Man and it's it's all very exciting and I love the pace of this movie it's so fucking great I guess we're supposed to understand that Norman isn't totally consciously aware of what he does when he becomes Green Goblin I feel like that concept doesn't really make much sense to me like why would it come and go why wouldn't he just be a raving lunatic all the time and I probably should mention that MJ lives next door to Peter at this point, and he frequently witnesses her being at least verbally abused by her father. Peter comes out one night as MJ is fleeing her father, and her and Peter talk, and she mentions how much Peter freaked everyone out at school. It's kind of a nice scene. Kirsten Dunst does a good job conveying the real her versus the facade that she basically puts up for her friends and school and stuff. Flash comes and whisks MJ away from her talk with Peter in his new convertible, and Peter decides he's going to get a car to impress her, I guess. He looks through the newspaper and finds what has to be a very shitty car for $3,000, and I gotta say, it would not impress MJ, I don't think. Then he spots another conveniently placed ad to get $3,000 for spending three minutes in a wrestling ring, and I guess... You could call it a bit of serendipity that he happens upon both of these ads, but 
I would use a term by the name of deus ex machina, which is essentially a plot device where a problem is given an unexpected or unlikely solution and it just happens and everything works out. So Peter makes up a suit with a spider theme, and I've got to say he is a tremendous artist as he's like coming up with costumes and stuff. So Peter goes to leave for the wrestling thing, and Uncle Ben offers him a ride, and you know, Ben has a little talk with Peter about shirking his chores at home and getting in fights and basically how he's changing into the man that he'll be for the rest of his life. He tells Peter that with great power comes great responsibility, and Peter is very dismissive towards his uncle and kind of tells him off, you know. I like this scene because the average teenager can often be too thick-headed to listen to parental figures trying to dispense advice, you know. Like, I remember I once wanted to make a career as a musician, specifically a hip-hop producer, and I assumed people struggled not to laugh in my face about it when I told them. My parents and others tried to steer me in the right direction, but I was convinced that it was what I wanted to do and I wouldn't listen. And, I mean, I honestly, I have no fucking musical talent whatsoever, really. Like, realistically, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. I can't keep the beat. I can't do any of that stuff. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. So long story short is only follow your dreams if your dreams aren't incredibly stupid. So Peter leaves Uncle Ben on an unpleasant note and hopefully that won't be the last conversation he ever has with them. Am I right? At the wrestling match, he's to fight a wrestler named Bonesaw played admirably by Macho Man Randy Savage. The announcer doesn't like that Peter wants to go by the human spider and instead calls him the amazing Spider-Man. And Peter is able to win the fight by remaining mostly defensive and utilizing the convenient cage that they bring in for his match. When Peter goes to get paid, the fight organizer only pays him $100 despite the ad saying 3000 because the ad said three minutes and Peter pinned Bonesaw in two. So Peter is naturally like, God fucking damn it, are you shitting me? I needed that $3,000 to help me get on the fast track to bang Kirsten Dunst. The organizer rather callously says he missed the part where that's his problem. And as Peter is walking out, this guy comes and robs the organizer, but Peter doesn't try and stop the guy because fuck that piece of shit organizer, am I right? And when the organizer asks Peter why he didn't stop the robber, Peter smugly says, I missed the part where that's my problem. And you just know Peter is so fucking proud of himself in that moment. You can, it's just like, I mean, he, he just has that look on his face. It's fucking ridiculous. Then as Peter is waiting for Uncle Ben to pick him up, he sees a crowd gathered and Ben has been shot and fatally wounded by a carjacker. We get some ugly crying from Tobey Maguire, and I can't in good conscience criticize it because that must be hard to make look real. Peter chases down the carjacker and finds out that it's the guy who robbed the fight organizer, and he kicks the ever-loving shit out of him. So obviously Peter is learning how his actions have consequences in one of the hardest ways possible. And meanwhile, Norman finds out that Oscorp might lose its military contract to another company, so he comes and bombs their demonstration, killing them and the military bigwigs. So it's like, who are the police's prime suspects in these Green Goblin crimes? Is there anyone else that they might be thinking of other than Norman Osborn? Anyway, Peter, Harry, and MJ have their graduation, and MJ breaks up with Flash right after the fucking ceremony. 
Of course, we get Peter in his full-fledged Spider-Man suit, and it's honestly probably still one of my favorite designs that I've ever seen in any of these movies. It It's so fucking great. I feel like they really oversimplified them as time went on, and I didn't like that. So, you know, we're getting this montage of Spider-Man, you know, saving people and stopping crimes and stuff like that. And all these New Yorkers are sharing their thoughts on Spidey. And it's not clear why, but some people just straight up hate his guts. We meet J. Jonah Jameson, who only wants to cover Spider-Man in the Daily Bugle newspaper when he finds out how many papers he's selling. Peter finds out that MJ is working at a diner and that she's dating Harry, who is roommates with Peter now. Norman offers Peter a job after he gets fired for being late too much, but Peter says no since he doesn't want to just be handed a job. So Peter starts taking photos of Spider-Man to make money, and I feel like the whole thing where he rigs up cameras on timers, that would be really fucking difficult to execute. Like, I don't think it would go as well as they make it out to go, you know? It's like... he's it's everything just goes perfect you know what I mean he gets amazing pictures and there's no problem and then the board at Oscorp is making Norman resign like they're basically getting bought out by another company and that's a stipulation of the deal is that Norman not be there then we get the parade scene featuring timeless musical act Macy Gray and they really picked a musician who had some true staying power for this movie. My goodness. Norman attacks the parade so that he can kill the major Oscorp board members as Green Goblin. Spider-Man gets a spider sense as the goblin's approaching and you know he knows that he's got to save the day and we get the scene where Spider-Man saves MJ and they show a shot of her in his arms, and it is so clearly a dummy in a spider suit. It looks ridiculous. But anyway, MJ is just over the moon about Spider-Man, and she's telling Harry about it, and he's concerned with how impressed she is with Spider-Man. And it does that dumb thing, like at the end of their phone call, you know, she hangs up, and it's like he's on a cell phone, But it goes straight to dial tone, which it doesn't even do that on landlines, let alone, you know, a cell phone that doesn't even use dial tones. It's just, I fucking hate how much movies always fucking do that shit. So Harry tells Peter that he's sorry about being with MJ, but he says that Peter never made the move which is still a basic bro code violation in my mind. Like, this is the one chick that Peter loves, and, you know, he doesn't talk about any other girls. You know, it's just her, so it's like, I, I don't I don't really think it's cool that he did this. We really see Willem Dafoe go all in on being what is supposed to be half-raving lunatic Green Goblin, half-regular Norman Osborn, and I don't really get why it works like this. Like, why does the insanity of the Goblin come and go like this? I don't understand it and it's like he forgets what he does as the goblin but the goblin doesn't forget what happens to norman for some reason the goblin finds spider-man and poses the idea of how they could work together he gives spider-man some time to decide but it seems like a pretty fucking easy no to me so the city is calling for spider-man's arrest and peter runs into mj and she says that acting is really not going well and Peter asks her how things with Harry are going, but he basically backpedals the question. And Mary Jane clearly knows that Peter is super into her, and she kind of hassles him a little bit about asking the question about Harry. And it's like, I mean, let him let him fuck it. If he's going to backpedal, he's going to backpedal. 
But I know it can be very hard to tell people how you feel when you feel a certain way about them. You know what I mean? It's it's not easy. I it's I, I struggle with it every day. But if you're out there listening, Anna Kendrick, and I know you probably are, I love you to the moon and back. And I think that we should, you know, finally break down and tie the old knot. Feels good to get that off my chest. As MJ leaves, we get this iconic scene where some bad guys chase MJ down an alley and Spider-Man comes to save her in the driving rain. We get Spider-Man hanging upside down and he and Mary Jane kiss and I think this is where I developed a crush on Kirsten Dunst. Like, she looks really good in this scene, but now, you know, she's too young for me in this movie particularly but that's what I love about these actresses that I keep falling for is that I keep getting older and they keep also getting older at the same rate and it's wonderful apparently this scene was rough for Tobey Maguire because you know it was raining and his sinuses were actually filling up with water the entire time Later on, Spidey saves a baby from a burning building and has to go back in and finds Goblin wanting an answer to the question about working together. And of course, Spider-Man says no. And in the ensuing fight, Spider-Man gets a cut on his wrist. Later, they're having what I assume to be Thanksgiving dinner and the cut on Peter's arm is bleeding through his sleeve and Norman figures out that he's Spider-Man. This is what I don't understand. It's like, Norman remembers the Goblin doing that, but I guess it might be that Norman and Goblin are merging and there's no separation anymore. Maybe just like Norman is an act, you know? But Norman was supposed to be meeting MJ at dinner and he leaves when he figures out that Peter is Spider-Man and says mean things about MJ that she overhears and then she gets pissed at Harry for not defending her enough on. So the Goblin decides to attack Aunt May to get at Spider-Man, and it's not really clear at all what he even does to her other than scare her, but she goes into the hospital anyway. And while Peter is visiting Aunt May, MJ comes and talks to him, and he basically says some really heartfelt things about MJ by way of a story about Spider-Man. And it's like, we get it, you want to fuck her, okay? Harry walks in on them, holding hands, and knows it's over for him and MJ, pretty much. Harry tells Norman what happened, and he's like, Oh no, shit, Peter loves MJ? Why don't I kidnap MJ and threaten her life in a very over-the-top and elaborate way where I make Spider-Man choose between her and a cable car full of people? So naturally, he does that. And I have to say, I'm all for patriotism, you know, but this post-9-11 New Yorkers defending their city is a bit fucking much. It feels forced. Like, I'm sorry, everyone, but it's like, it's just a, it's a really forced show of solidarity that I, I, it didn't really work for me. So Peter and Green Goblin's showdown ends in an abandoned building. So to set the scene, Spider-Man has the upper hand and he's talking to Goblin, who is incapacitated and reveals that he's actually Norman Osborn. Behind Peter, Goblin is remotely controlling his glider to attack Spider-Man, but Spider-Man's spider sense goes off and he dodges the glider and it kills Norman. Harry vows to get revenge on Spider-Man because, you know, he sees Spider-Man dropping the body off at Norman's office, you know, he drops Norman's body on the couch or whatever. And so Harry's like, oh, I got to get that Spider-Man. He killed my dad. Peter explains in voiceover that no matter what he does, the ones he loves will always pay. And so he turns down what has to be a pretty fucking sure thing with MJ to protect her. 
like she kisses him and tells him she loves him and it's like I'm thinking I might take the low road here and see where it goes, you know. So he walks away and he does voiceover saying that he'll never forget that with great power comes great responsibility. And that's his gift as well as his curse. And he will remain Spider-Man for two more movies and then be replaced by an actor who is actually older than him. But I would have loved it if, I mean, it's too bad he would have been such a no-name actor, but I would have loved to see... Andrew Garfield get cast as Spider-Man in this string of Sam Raimi movies starting in 2002 because he would have been about 20 and so was Kirsten Dunst. So it's like, fuck, you know, I mean, it, it'll, it would, it would have been so fucking incredible guys. I would have loved it. So my praise for this movie is that I love the quick work they make of the origin stories. The action is kept up pretty well once things get going the effects are good by 2002 standards, kinda, and really set the tone for superhero movies and action movies to come. The story is pretty relatable, and I like that Peter doesn't get involved with MJ to protect her in the end. Like, it's a good way to close it out. Like, it's not just like the guy gets the girl or whatever. My only criticism for this movie is the casting of Tobey Maguire. Like, I don't hate Tobey Maguire. I just felt like there were many actors that could have done this better. I, I think they would have been a better fit. I mean, I, I'm so used to the 90s animated series version of Spider-Man. I The way he talked, the way he taunted his villains, you know, I just loved it. So a little bit of trivia. This was the first film to gross $100 million on its opening weekend alone ever. At that time, no movie had done so, even when adjusted for inflation. And I do remember this movie being a hit, you know, it was a pretty big smash hit. And I saw it twice in theaters, so it was, you know, I liked it a lot. In the wake of the terror attacks on September 11, 2001, Sony recalled teaser posters which showed a close-up of Spider-Man's face with the New York skyline, including the World Trade Center Twin Towers prominently, reflected in his eyes. Not all the posters were recovered, however, and the ones still at large are now highly prized collector's items. On that note, they also did a handful of reshoots and cuts from the actual movie and trailers. The film's original teaser trailer, released that same year, featured a mini-film plot and Involving a group of bank robbers escaping in a helicopter, which gets caught from behind and propelled backward into what at first appears to be a net, and then is shown to be a gigantic spider web spun between the World Trade Center towers. Hugh Jackman revealed that he was supposed to have a brief cameo as Wolverine in this movie. Jackman actually showed up in New York to film the scene, but the entire plan was scrapped when the crew couldn't get access to the Wolverine costume from X-Men from 2000. But it seems like they didn't really have to fucking have the exact costume to make that cameo happen. Like, I feel like we really got screwed out of that one. By signing for two sequels... Toby McGuire secured himself a paycheck of $26 million. Color costume considerations meant that Spider-Man was shot in front of a green screen, while the Green Goblin was shot in front of a blue one. Info and ratings. We have a runtime of 121 minutes. Budget, $139 million. Opening weekend, $114.8 million. Worldwide gross, $825 million. IMDb rating, 7.4. Rotten Tomato Critics Score, 90%. Rotten Tomato Audience Score, 67%. Personal Rating, 5 out of 5 stars. I 
really love this one. It's I hold it near and dear to my heart. I realize that it's got its flaws and things like that, but I really like it. I mean, I probably... I would have recast a lot of people if I had this one to do over again, but I, I like the way it turned out, honestly. It, it's very fucking good. All right, everybody. Well, those were a couple of Marvel movies. I hope you enjoyed the show today. It was... Uh, it's fun to do this. I love to cover these movies that I have watched so many times that I actually can just dive right into talking about them, you know? Obviously, reach out to me if you've got any requests or any suggestions or anything like that and let me know what you'd like to see. I can obviously entertain ideas. I don't necessarily think I'll go through with all of them, but thanks, everybody. Have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is performed, written, directed, produced, and edited by Brandon Griffiths. Theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz from Fiverr.